Welcome to Solder Smoke, a podcast about wireless technology. We talk about everything from old-time crystal radios to modern digital satellites. We form a global brotherhood bound together by a common desire to understand, repair, design, and build our own electronic equipment, and by a willingness to help each other in our efforts to master radio technology. All are welcome. Now, please join us in the solder smoke. Okay, guys, it's Sunday morning, August 7th, 2011, and that means I better get going with Solder Smoke 136. Hey, it's been a while. I've been kind of falling behind schedule here. Summertime, you know, it goes a lot of vacation stuff, a lot of, a lot of things going on. So that's my excuse for being a little bit late in uh, putting out this edition of Solder Smoke. Got some travel log for you that goes with the summer vacation business. We were up in up in my hometown in New York City. Hadn't been there for a long time. Uh, but Maria and, uh, to a lesser extent, Billy, were saying that they wanted to see the city. Uh, Elisa hadn't been there in a long time, and I hadn't been there in a long time either. So we, uh, we headed up, headed up to the Big Apple, and um, had a really great time. We stayed in, uh, in the Chelsea section of Manhattan, the other Chelsea. You know, for years I was sending out... Uh, a podcast from the Royal 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 Borough of uh, Kensington and Chelsea, but uh, we were in the other Chelsea, the one on the other side of the pond in New York City. Had a great time, um, saw all the sights, and we were there with friends from London. And so we this this kind of forced us to do all the tourist kind of things, even though we sort of consider ourselves New Yorkers. We did things that native New Yorkers never do. We went to the uh, Statue of Liberty, went out to Ellis Island. Went up to the top of the Empire State Building, did Times Square. Um, kind of some interesting stuff from, I guess, from the from the technology uh, perspective, from the perspective of uh, of of a of a knack victim. The um, on the west side of Manhattan, they have this thing called the High Line. I hadn't noted, I hadn't heard about this. It's they they used to have this rail line that would um, take freight into uh, into the city, and they, it was an elevated train line, and it would go along the west side along the Hudson River and I guess about 1980 they stopped using it because uh, trucks were bringing most of the stuff in and when they thought about tear, tearing down the uh, elevated rail line some of the people in the neighborhood said wait a second let's let's put this to use grass had started to grow up on the uh, on the tracks oh man there's my two meter receiver hold on let me turn this thing down <laughs> I'll tell you more about that in a minute but anyway they um they decided to convert the elevated rail line into a park, an elevated park. <laughs> so it's about, I guess it's about 50 yards wide and, uh, let's see, probably about 25 New York City blocks long. It goes from uh, 10th Street all the way up to 35th Street, and they've got a really beautiful park up there. And uh, it it's they, they've kept the kind of natural grasses kind of theme and really cool elisa as a garden designer really really enjoyed that it's a good opportunity you get to walk all the way across a big chunk of manhattan island without having to deal with uh with traffic or um, or stoplights or anything like that i found uh, a bunch of amateur astronomers up there doing i guess you couldn't call it sidewalk astronomy i guess it was um kind of uh, highline astronomy but they had a they had their telescopes out, and they uh, 
they were showing people Saturn, and uh, I, uh, I told them I, I told them I had a telescope myself, and in a very kind of New York way, they were saying, "Hey, why don't you bring it out here? Bring it out here! Come on, what's the matter with you?" <laughs> and I had to explain that well, it was you know down in Washington D.C. area, so it would be a, a, a bit of a hike. So they understood. But anyway, that was fun. Up on the Empire State Building, uh, you know. Uh, I, I mean, my thought, thoughts immediately turned to things electrical, of course, and they've got all kinds of um, lightning rods up there. And we were up at the very top at the 102nd story. Great view of the city, of course. Uh, the kids really loved it. But I did some inquiries and find, found that, that building does, in fact, get hit by lightning. I think they said about 100 times a month. It must get zapped when they have people up there. And you're up in this little little tiny room up there sort of at the base of the uh, the big antenna at the top and <laughs> i was thinking it must be wild if you're up there when it gets when they get a lightning strike also they have must have a really fantastic um grounding system that takes all that energy and dumps it into the bedrock of manhattan island uh, amazing stuff so uh, anyway a great a great trip to new york city wonderful place and uh I mean, you gotta you gotta approach a trip to New York City with a certain kind of attitude. You gotta be <laughs> you gotta be sort of willing to deal a little bit with the New York attitude. Although everybody was very nice to us, but you know, as a New Yorker, I could tell you that there is a kind of uh, time is money while we're young kind of let's move it attitude. <laughs> and uh, of course, if you go there in the summertime, you're going to stand on a few lines as you wait to get out to the Statue of Liberty and up on top of the Empire State Building. But uh, we had a great time, so uh, three cheers for New York. As Maria says, sounds so nice they had to name it twice. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, speaking of lightning, uh, this gets us to the uh, to the solder melting segment of the of the, this month's show. I've been I have been melting quite a bit of solder. I'm, I'm sure many of you'll be pleased to to hear this, um, and it's been sort of remedial solder melting. I think I mentioned in the in the last program that my my whisper transceiver, my double sideband direct conversion weak signal propagation reporting transceiver homebrew model, um, suffered from a nearby lightning strike. Uh, lightning hit the neighborhood earlier in the summer. I guess it sent a real powerful surge through my uh, little end-fed wire antenna up in the trees, and it. It smoked many, many components of my simple little transceiver. More components than I originally suspected. I first thought that it just took out the um, the FET transistors in the uh, in the final amplifier stage. This was the um, the soft rock uh, amplifier stage that I had converted from um, surface mount to um, Manhattan style. There we go. A New York theme also. Um, I thought that was it. I thought that it had just gone in there and it had taken out those little FETs that they had in the final, but I was wrong. As I started trying to do, trying to repair this um, this rig, I discovered that more and more components were uh, destroyed or probably destroyed by that lightning surge. For example, the um, the USB to serial converter that I was using got fried, which was a shame because now I can't use the thing anymore with my little uh, Asus EPC uh, netbook. Um, the other elements that got taken out, um, the SBL1 mixer, the diode ring mixer that um, 
AL7RV that Jim had sent me got cooked and um, these things they 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 die kind of kind of quickly if you we had a picture of the uh, kind of one that was opened up and they are pretty fragile not only the diode diodes in there but the coils in there it's tiny little wires so I wasn't really surprised that the SBL one um, got knocked out the uh, the final audio amp you know the audio amp that I have in this thing is from uh, Roger Hayward's um, uh, it's his design and it's from the uh, article in QST from the June 1992 article in QST the ugly weekender 2 adding a junk box receiver I took Roger's uh, discrete component audio amplifier and used it in this rig and the um, the, the final the transistor final in there which is a 2N3904 was um, apparently also cooked by the voltage surge but anyway guys you know this is this sounds like really all kinds of bad stuff this is you know it sounds like all bad news but no as a um, as a home brewer, as a solder melter, as a, uh, a knack uh, victim, you have to look on the bright side. So I, I have come to refer to this lightning strike as the stroke of luck because it caused me to do a lot of solder melting that I probably wouldn't do otherwise. Um, do a lot of kind of redesign in this little rig. And I learned a lot. In the, in the process of doing it. Um, for example, when it came time to, to replace the final amplifier in there, I went back and took a look at uh, W3PM's uh, transceiver that, that, that was really the, the inspiration uh, for, for this rig. I built this rig in Rome. Um, so I guess we can call it not only homemade, but Rome-made. <laughs> anyway, um, Gene W3PM had provided the inspiration. His rig was um, more sophisticated because he actually made it uh, not an SSB, not a DSB rig, but an SSB rig using a, um, a kind of a filter in the, um, in the final amplifier stage there that, well, I mean, it's, it's different. It's not your standard. Uh, it's, it's sort of a direct conversion double sideband. You got to take a look at Gene's schematic to see how he did it. Anyway, I, uh, I made a simpler version, DSB um, and direct conversion receiver. But um, I, when I went back and looked at Gene's circuitry, I realized, and he wrote something there that's important, that for, for Whisper, you don't really need a linear amplifier. You can go with a, a class C amplifier in the final because it's just, it's basically frequency shift keying. And it's not like it's not like you're running foam, so it's just a, a form of um, FSK that we're using with Whisper. So a Class C amplifier in the final of the transmitter will work out just fine. So I went with a Class C, and it of course runs a lot cooler, a lot simpler, and it was fun to to put that in there. One other thing I noticed as I was working on this rig is now that I once I got the um, transmit receive. Um, control circuitry in there that allows the computer to switch from transmit to receive in when I'm in whisper mode um, I noticed that the, the 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 simple little culpits oscillator that I had in there uh, it definitely needed a buffer stage because what would happen is that when the rig switched from transmit to receive 
there would be a small but but significant shift in frequency as the the load on the oscillator changed and although this might not have caused too much trouble in whisper mode I'm, my intention is to eventually use this rig at least for a few QSOs in a PSK 31 mode and there it would be a, a problem so I started looking around for um, a, uh, a circuit that I could use for the um, a replacement circuit for the oscillator here aha got it here so I can tell you about it anyway um, I lo started looking around for a simple buffered stable nice oscillator circuit and I found it and I was really pleased with the source because you know it's fun when you include components and, and bits of circuitry from friends and uh, I came across on the web very quickly it was almost as if I was guided to this circuit um, an article by uh, George Dobbs G3RJV of GQRP fame weekend projects for QRPers and one of them was a universal VXO very nice little circuit uh, that, that George put together and um, and he says here I recall having a long conversation with the late Doug DeMaw, W1FB, who was an advocate for the use of VXO in home build, of the VXO in home-built equipment. His contention with the v, was the VXO is a very viable option for home-built amateur radio equipment, especially for miniature or portable stations. And there it is, two transistors um, and a very nice circuit. The buffer stage is fine and anyway I put it together and work like a charm George the only thing I had to do is in my circuit I found that under certain circumstances it was um, taken off a bit and uh, using and this is a, you kind of develop some sort of some sort of homebrew instincts here and I, I noticed that the output I could see it was it was taken off and then there was it was starting to oscillate on frequencies I think that the the buffer stage was starting to um, oscillate on its own a little bit and I found that when I grabbed the toroid there's a toroid there's a, um, a, a tuned circuit in the final and when I grabbed it I physically grabbed that little toroid it the oscillation stopped and the output was very clean and on the desired frequency so my instincts were a high needs some DQing DQing is in order so I just took a um, a 2k resistor and put it across the coil across the, across the tune circuit which of course reduced the uh, the tune circuit Q and the um, and the uh, it did the trick so the instability was taken care of there but otherwise it's exactly uh, George Dobbs's circuit and I'm, I'm sure in most applications that that little resistor wouldn't be necessary it's just in sort of the weird circuit that I was plugging George's um, device into required a little bit of DQing, but it was fun to fun to fix it and thanks to George for that let's see what else I have here let's see W3 p.m. DQing da, 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 da. anyway put it all together and it's um ah here's the uh, now see this there's always more <laughs> um, I, when the with the SBL1 mixer the diode ring mixer gone cooked fried I, I needed a uh, a new uh, de new detector I needed to replace it with something and I decided to keep this real simple because this rig is supposed to be a real simple whisper uh, transceiver so I started looking around 
and um, somehow I stumbled across kind of an old familiar circuit, something that we've talked about quite a bit here on um, on Solder Smoke, the um, the Polyakov detector, and I, this has been on the blog. We've talked about it here on the program. This is developed by the famous Russian radio amateur Vladimir Polyakov, and it's it's two diodes um, back to back. In parallel, but one with, with the little arrows pointing in opposite directions, and you you feed the local oscillator energy to one side of this circuit, and the bottom line is that you're able with the Polyakov detector to run the oscillator at half the operating frequency, and this allows you to avoid all kinds of problems that normally come with direct conversion receivers. It keeps the um, oscillator energy from getting into the uh, the front end of the receiver and avoids all kinds of common mode hum and everything else. Anyway, it runs a lot nicer. But that's, of course, not really what I was looking for here because I need the, in this application, I need the, the oscillator to be running at the operating frequency because half the time it's running the transmitter and in direct, con- in, in double sideband mode, the other half it's Running the uh, the rest of the time, it's running the receiver in direct conversion mode. So the the standard Polyakov circuit really wouldn't work. So I decided to use what I call half a Polyakov, <laughs> just just the one diode. I decided to use a very very simple detector, just one little diode, and that's what my receiver is running on right now. I guess I was inspired in this by uh, by Mike AA1TJ. And you know, so the receiver basically, I mean, it's it goes from the antenna. There's one little LC tune circuit. And then from the tune circuit, the RF from the antenna goes to the diode. And at the same, si- same side of the diode, the, the local oscillator energy comes up. And uh, the diode is it. That's the only uh, mixer. And that's the complete front end of, of the receiver. And then from there, it goes to Roger Hayward's um audio amplifier from the ugly weekender and that's it and it and it works um and it um i have it hooked up i have it online and it's running off the little uh tecra 8100 laptop uh computer that i that i'm also recording solder smoke 136 on um that was also sent to me this is another roadkill computer sent to me by a uh, solder smoke listener so I mean, there's so many components from different people in this rig, so many bits of circuitry from from friends. It's a, it made the um, the fact that it was built in Rome, hit by lightning here in Virginia, and fixed here. <laughs> I don't know. These are the ways you, I guess, you put soul in the new machine and uh, create kind of uh, kind of emotional <laughs> connections with your equipment. It's it's really ugly, guys. After all this modification and change and repair. <clears throat> Man, it's I'm telling you, it it's it, it's it's ugly construction with a capital U, <laughs> but I've had fun with it. By the way, uh, uh, Steve Smith, um, uh, our our man on the left coast, Steve Snortrosen Smith, when I was discussing the um, the Polyakov detector, he uh, he decided, be, you know, using the uh, the first name of the designer, Vladimir. Um, he, and I, I know he said this in a very kind of admiring 
respectful way. He said we should call uh, this receiver or this uh, detector circuit anyway, um, Vlad the Inhaler, <laughs> Silver Tongue Devil, uh, Steve Smith. Thanks for sharing that with us, Steve. You're, uh, you're, you're, you may soon be uh, um, named as a, a kind of a uh, an associate member of the uh, poet laureates of QRP. <laughs> anyway. Um, Speaking of Steve Smith, this brings us to another project, Outer Space. We're, we're moving into outer space now, and the Royal Order of the Sputnik Clone Chasers. This is a project that those of you who've been following the blog will will know has been going on for, for a while now. And uh, I think the, the original idea came to uh, Michael AA1TJ as he was wandering through Europe, speaking, thinking about uh, amateur radio in outer space, as you do. Um, the idea is let's build a um, let's build all over the world um, replicas of the small tube type QRP transmitter used in the Sputnik One spacecraft, and then let's put them on the air. The Sputnik One operated on 20 megahertz. Uh, the rigs that we're going to build will operate on 21 megahertz in the amateur uh, 15 meter band, and wouldn't it be great fun? using tubes and circuitry as close as possible to the original Sputnik 1 to build these rigs, put them on the air, and then use them to communicate uh, with other radio amateurs. Um, outsiders might not understand the uh, the appeal of this project. Uh, I, I certainly do, and I'm sure listeners to the Solder Smoke podcast will will see the uh, the intriguing nature of this, of this project. And so it's now moving into the construction phase. Uh, at first, there was a kind of intense worldwide search for the actual schematic diagram. And this, it was really kind of kind of fun. We had um, uh, co-conspirators in Russia, uh, in Kansas, uh, here in Washington, D.C., in Germany, all around the world. People were looking to try to find the actual schematic diagram for the transmitter, or a an actual flight spare. The actual we had we'd heard that there, that some museums actually had working flight spares of the Sputnik One, and of course we were hoping to have the opportunity to crack one of those babies open and uh, and uh, draw out the schematic diagram for the transmitter. But uh, really, no luck on on either score. The uh, what were supposed to be the flight spares turned out to be kind of empty spheres. Um, back in the day, I guess the uh, the Soviets were not really too keen on sharing technical details, <laughs> especially with us. <laughs> um, so uh, no no schematic diagrams and no um, no flight spares, but pictures. We have uh, we have pictures of the innards and pictures of the of the of the transmitter or parts of the transmitter so um, we know what kind of parts they were using um, Michael and others have procured the tubes and some of the crystals and um, I understand that uh, parts boxes have gone out and that within a couple of months these these rigs will will be on on the air on the 15 meter band so uh, stay tuned and um, of course, we're I'm I'm delighted with this whole thing, and I'm sure many of you will be also because there's a big IGY link 
I found a um, an article in QST about um, listening to Sputnik um, back when it was launched in in 1957, and they they reproduced a QSL cards that the um, that the Soviet Soviets sent out for people who had succeeded in monitoring the um, the um, the transmissions from the spacecraft, and the the QSL noted that this was all part. Actually, the QSL came from the Soviet IGY, the International Geophysical Year Committee. So uh, there was there was an IGY link there, and uh, yeah, three cheers for the IGY. All right, now we're we're in outer space now, so let's stay there for a while. This leads us to Arisat One. This is the uh, amateur radio satellite launched on the 3rd of August of this year, just a few days ago, by cosmonauts on the International Space Station. It's a, it's a little cube, I guess it looks like the size of a, a microwave oven, and it's got all kinds of, of really cool radio amateur um, circuitry in there. And uh, we, uh, we watched, as there are videos of the deployment, and I gotta tell you, the videos are kind of scary because that poor little satellite got bounced around quite a bit. Now, I guess it's easy for us to be sort of armchair quarterbacks, armchair astronauts. And as you watch the videos, you're thinking, wow, the cosmonauts should have been more careful with that satellite because it, it does seem to get bounced around a bit. But, uh, of course, very few of us <laughs> have actually been out there. Although there might be a listener out there. You know, you never know. We might have a spacewalker listening. Uh, Jay Apt is a radio amateur and spent a lot of time walking around. If Jay, if you're listening, uh, I'm sure you'll let us know that it's it's not as easy as it seems. So anyway, we're, we're pleased that the cosmonauts got the thing launched. We suspect that it was launched without one of the antennas, without the... Um, the 70 centimeter receive antenna. It looks like the thing got thrown out into space without that antenna attached. But um, the two meter antenna, the the downlink antenna, was definitely attached. You could see it there, and that thing is producing really, really great results. They've got SSTV on board. There are cameras on board. It's shooting video from space and sending it down on two meters. I've been tuned in during two passes of this thing. That's why my uh, two-meter handheld was on um, at the start of the podcast because I just finished listening to a pass of the um, the Arasat One on two meters, one four five point nine five zero, and um, it came pretty much directly overhead, and I I got some really good signals from it, including the uh, the tones for SSTV. So uh, later on this morning, I might take that uh, the, the audio recording and um, and see if I can decode the SSTV signals and see if I can get some pictures. Really, really cool stuff. I, I'm going to share with you guys a little bit of the uh, the sound of RSAT one. This is from the 145.950 uh, beacon, and it's just my little old Tandy Radio Shack two meter handheld hooked up to a little mag mount antenna that I have sitting out on the back porch and uh, I'll play you a little bit of it now you'll hear um, uh, female voices announcing Arasat in Russian English Spanish and, and I think other languages are in there 
and you'll hear some of the um, SSTV tones that I'm talking about. Stand by. Set one, three cheers for for AMSAT and the and the folks who who put that that rig in space and on the air. And I wish them a lot of luck. And also for the cosmonauts who who launched it into space. Actually, you know, you got to realize that these guys are risking their lives on those uh, spacewalks. So uh, thanks to them for for getting that thing into orbit. Okay, um, let's see. Shifting gears here a bit now. Summertime reading. It's summertime. People are heading to the beach. And I guess I should talk a little bit about summertime reading. I um, was delighted to get my uh, copy of Spratt, issue number 147, summer 2011. My copy is already quite beat up <laughs> because I've been carrying it everywhere. It's got a big coffee stain on it because the uh, coffee grounds, coffee grinds that I brought home from work for our compost barrel and carried on my bicycle kind of spilled on it but it's okay it's got it's got this really kind of used look and it's got many articles that are kind of marked and highlighted for um, 
future study and for mention here on the podcast. My, I'm, I'm, I continue to be intrigued by the um, articles about the ZL2 BMI DSB 80 meter transceiver by Eric Sears, ZL2 BMI. We talked about this in in a recent uh, podcast. Um, Eric has made some some changes and some corrections here, and you know some of this. I, I really love this little rig. It's so simple. I mean, you got to check it out. It's it's a very simple circuit, and um, it's a it's a wonderful little transceiver. The only part that I'm really not crazy about with it is its use of the integrated circuits, you know, and I guess we're getting more and more sort of radical fundamentalist here. But let me read you a paragraph from Eric's article in, in Sprat. It says here, subsequently I did some tests <clears throat> and found that if pin 4 was used as the DSP output with pin 5 bypassed, this reduced to less than 30 hertz the frequency shift. Since the NE602 is symmetrical, I still don't understand why this should be so, but it occurred for any 602s or 612s that I tried. So we have reversed the connections. Pin 4 is now the DSB output and pin 5 the audio, and this gives great improvement to the modulation. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm great, great, I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad for your success, but it's this, this sort of highlights the fact that these little boxes are sort of mystery black boxes anyway um, but as I said I'm a big fan of uh, the ZL2 BMI rig but you know this we're talking about chips here IC chips and um, on the summertime reading theme I have a book Cranks Quarks and the Cosmos writings on science by Jeremy Bernstein this is also kind of a New York theme because uh, Jeremy Bernstein was the um, science editor for the New Yorker magazine for many years. What a great job that'd be. And um, he um, he has a, 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 a... One of the articles that he wrote for the New Yorker is Science Education for the Non-Scientist. And he talks here... Let me tell you what. Let me get you the right page here. It says here... He's complaining about his own technological bewilderment. Most of us, myself included, are increasingly surrounded by objects that we use daily, but whose workings are a total mystery to us. This thought, this thought struck me forcibly about a year ago. One day, for reasons I can no longer reconstruct, I was looking around my apartment when it suddenly occurred to me that it was full of objects I did not understand. A brief catalog included my color television set, a battery-operated alarm watch, an electronic chess-playing machine, and a curious fountain pen that tells the time. Here I am, I thought, a scientist surrounded by domestic artifacts whose workings I don't understand. I then began asking several of my colleagues in theoretical physics whether they had the same feeling. I didn't ask the experimenters, I know, because those people really do understand how things work. They, too, reported similar feelings. Here's where we get to the kind of the knack part of it. My first impulse was to build something, say a radio, writes Mr. Bernstein, with the hope that if I could actually put it together with my own hands, I might understand it, so to speak, on its own terms. 
I went so far as to order an electronics kit from a large scientific mail-order house in New Jersey. Following directions, I managed to make several radios, one of which actually worked. The only problem was that the components of the kit were so modular that I couldn't understand them, them either. A few of my friends have actually designed and built small computers. I envy them this ability. It occurred to me that an entire course could be taught on how one non-trivial thing, say a small computer, actually works. I don't mean how to program a computer, a skill that is now readily being acquired by elementary school students. I mean actually building one, designing the logic circuits and the rest. If such a course were taught for lay people, I would take it myself. Good for you. Good for you, Jeremy. And I think his observation about the, uh, the modular components is... Uh, is something that uh, many of us can can sympathize with. You know, discrete components are the way to go in most cases. <laughs> For most people, sometimes. All right, let's see. Continuing on summertime reading. Hey, um, a magazine here that I know you guys would like, and you still might be able to get it. I'm sure you will. We get Smithsonian Magazine here. Wonderful magazine. We also get Smithsonian Air and Space that I talk to talk about quite a bit. But we lately we've been getting just plain old Smithsonian and the June twenty eleven issue, big picture of a, a whale of a shark. The biggest fish in the sea. You'll so that's how you'll recognize the cover. If you see the Smithsonian with a big big whale of a shark on the front cover, that's the one I'm talking about. Some really great stuff in here. There's an article about the development of drones, um, the um, UAVs, the remote control or remotely piloted um, aerial drones, and it's called Ready for Takeoff. Aerial drones are not just for the military anymore by Richard Conniff. And it talks about how in the uh, Columbia River Valley out there on the West Coast, um, a, uh, a whole kind of industrial center has developed around the the development of these um, these drones. Many of them, which of course are being used by the military, but the article I think very encouragingly points out how n- not all the applications are military, and a lot of these devices are now being used for uh, peaceful scientific purposes. Really interesting stuff, and and I think encouraging and, and kind of inspirational how uh, garage-based um, small businesses can, in more ways than one, take off and uh, how there's some real creative people working on, hands-on on technology out there. So I think you'd like that. But also, and this is the reason really I mention uh, this particular issue of the Smithsonian, is that they do a, a survey of kind of weird American museums, uh, unusual American museums. And on page 53, there is an article on the Titan Missile Museum in Saorita, Arizona. And this caught my eye and because it, the source that they quote there here is uh, Chuck Penson, the museum's archivist and historian. Chuck recalls a tour he once gave to a former Soviet military commander familiar with the USSR's missile defenses. 
when he was on top of the silo looking down and heard the magnitude of power that could have been unleashed, he put his head in his hands and meditated for a moment. It was clear that he found it a little upsetting, indeed. Chuck Penson is a ham radio operator, ham radio guy, an important guy in ham radio. He's the guy who wrote the uh, the book about Heath kits and all the Heath kits. I have it on my shelf here, a wonderful book. And uh, I knew, I knew, I remembered that Chuck was involved in the Titan Missile Museum. What happened is when we got rid of all these um, horrible uh, missiles and silos, we kept one as a museum, and that's what uh, what Chuck works on. And it says here, um, it describes the, the the technology, and it's of course very technologically interesting, if but of course quite quite sobering. Um, and I was pleased to see Chuck get mentioned here in Smithsonian. So you guys might want to check that out, not only for the uh, article about Chuck, but like I said about the, uh, the, the UAV article, quite good. All right, let's see. What else we got here? Um, I, you know, I love this little electric radio magazine, and I grab one as I walk out of the house, grab one of these, grab a Sprat, and I'm good to go. There's an article in here that I found really intriguing, and we're in the... Uh, December 1996 issue of Electric Radio. Uh, Article AM Receiver Selectivity. How Much? What Kind? By John Searing, WB2EQG. It's an interesting question. It says, you know, this brings me to the Drake 2B because um, one of my, one of the, the only things I don't like about the Drake 2B is that it's a bit too narrow for AM. Um, the, the widest selectivity setting for the Drake 2B is, is 3.6 kilohertz, which is a little tight for AM. Uh, quite a bit tight for AM, as a matter of fact. But then the idea is, well, why don't you just um, tune the AM signal? Why don't you just use one sideband? And then, you know, just ignore the other sideband. Treat the AM signal as a, uh, as a single sideband signal and uh, just use half of it because, you know, if, if it was an SSB signal, that's what you'd be doing. Anyway, I'll just read you a few quotes here. So our AM receivers could have tighter bandwidths, plus or minus 3 kilohertz, for a total of 6 kilohertz and still pass both sidebands. But blah, 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 he talks about... Um, this makes them both redundant. Here's the point. So why do we have to pass both of them? Why not dispense with one of the sidebands and work with just the carrier and the remaining sideband? If we could do this, we'd have a receiver that could be twice as selective yet still have a frequency response sufficient for good-sounding speech. Indeed, this has occurred to me. And I was thinking about this, an ER says here, if you try this yourself with the usual receiver, you'll immediately notice one big problem, lots of distortion, which gets worse as the amount of modulation on the signal goes up. This is because the carrier, as received at the detector, is 5 to 10 dB below most of the sidebands due to the rounded shape of the usual receiver's selectivity curve. This makes the signal at the detector act as if it was severely overmodulated. Makes sense. Great. 
Um, a solution to the problem appeared just before World War II. Oh, man, this is the interesting bit. In 1941, the FCC and the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, needed receivers of the highest possible selectivity to monitor enemy radioactivity. But along with high selectivity to fight QRM, they needed a receiver that would still pass the higher speech frequencies accurately accurately, as the Japanese language is in particular contains a lot of sibilant S sounds. Wow. <laughs> sibilant S sounds. My problem. You know, my whistling S's. And here they, they had a need, and I didn't know about this, but during World War II, as they were trying to, to listen in on Japanese communications, they needed receivers that would pass the higher speech frequencies because the Japanese language contains a lot of sibilant S sounds. I didn't know that. It says here, such a receiver was produced and successfully used during the war. Its solution was to use a differently shaped selectivity curve. It used a bandpass shape that was flat, or nearly so, on top instead of round-nosed, but with half the bandwidth, 3 kilohertz, of an ordinary AM receiver. Wow. There must be some kind of hitch to all this, you might be thinking. Well, the story isn't complete yet. After all, if receiving the carrier in just, side, just one sideband is so great, how come it isn't the way all AM receivers are designed? And yeah, that's, that's true. And then we get into the, um, the phasing relationship between the, um, the sidebands and the carrier and the, dif- and the difficulties that are caused when you try to use a... Um, a, a carrier inserted by the receiver not coming from the uh, the transmitter. And this gets to some of the kind of inherent difficulties in using the system. But anyway, maybe we'll talk more about that next time. I want to study it a little bit more. Where is this here? Da, 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 da. And you get into phasers and phaser diagrams and everything else. There's quite a bit on this in Solder Smoke, the book, when I discuss how the phasing method of sideband generation is used in the Helicrafters HT37 transmitter. But I thought I would share with you this part of this article, at least, and the business about the sibilant S sounds and the, uh, and the shape of the filters. All right, let's see. Thanks very much to Electric Radio. All right, let's see. From a time reading, we'll look, look through my notes here. Yeah, okay. Um, the Drake 2B. We mentioned the Drake 2B. The serial number project is going very well. You'll recall that um, we were trying to determine how many Drake 2Bs were were produced, and we came up. Somebody wrote in, and I have his name on the blog. I'm I'm sorry, I forget the call right now, but somebody wrote in and said there's a way we can do this, and what we do is we simply use a statistical technique developed during World War II to determine the number of German tanks produced based on the serial numbers of a limited number of captured German tanks. So our, um, our mathematically inclined uh, colleagues said that if we had a sample of 
Drake 2B serial numbers, we could use the formulas developed and, and come up with a, an accurate estimate of the total number of Drake 2Bs produced. So guys from all around the world have been sending in uh, serial numbers of their Drake 2Bs, and I've been posting them on the soldersmoke.blogspot.com page. If you look and you search for Drake 2B, if you go down to the, uh, to the index in the left-hand column, of the blog page, scroll down to Drake 2B. It'll take you to the uh, part of the blog page that where we're cataloging these serial numbers. Um, Roger out there in California has been very, very helpful. He's been searching eBay and looking at eBay listings and getting a number of, um, of serial numbers from that source and other websites too. So we've got, I, I, think, I think we have enough um, serial numbers now for an accurate um, statistical analysis. So I'll be sending those numbers on to our um, solder smoke statistician <laughs> for, 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 for analysis. And we'll, we'll let you guys know on the next uh, podcast or probably on the blog uh, our estimate of the total number of Drake 2Bs. Something else kind of mathematically, <laughs> uh, a mathematical issue that came up recently, and I want to mention this. You know, we were talking, uh, I, I mentioned frequently, I guess, and, and also I mentioned it in Solder Smoke, the book, that one of my favorite uh, electronics and science books is uh, a little little tiny uh, paperback that I picked up years ago called From Atoms to Amperes by an ingenious uh, Brit named F.A. Wilson. Not a radio amateur, but uh, an engineer. An engineer with a real great way of bringing science, technology, theory, and practice together and very clearly describing how things work and why they work with a mixture of mathematics and uh, non-mathematic presentations really a good book i really enjoyed it very much mine is falling apart it's held together by rubber bands and duct tape a great book i mentioned it and then guys started going out and looking for it on on ebay and amazon and other places and (laughs) somebody sent me an email saying hey bill check out the prices on F.A. Wilson's book, From Atoms to Amperes. And I took a look, and sure enough, they were, they were, it was being sold in two different, on two different sites. I think they were Amazon sellers. Two different Amazon sellers had made the book available, used. And the prices on both were just, like, eye-poppingly large, like $5,000 for, for this book. And then the other site would be like 6237 with $3 for shipping. <laughs> and we monitored, monitored this situation over the course of a few weeks, and the price just kept going up and up and up, both sites, bidding the price up, 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 ever upward. That should have been the hint because we couldn't figure out what was going on. And then all of a sudden there was an article that appeared on Slashdot, and some other locations, I think, and some of our listeners alerted me to this. And and here's what's happening. The Amazon sellers have an opportunity, a 
apparently, to link the price on their site to prices on other websites. In other words, you, you can set it up so that the price for your book is a bit higher than the price on other sites. And if if there's only a few sites that are selling a particular book and they all do this, <laughs> you get a feedback loop, a positive feedback loop. And so if somebody bumps the price up and bids a little bit higher on one site, it causes the, the site the other sites to see that their prices go up. The original site sees those prices going up. Up goes the price. The whole thing starts to oscillate. <laughs> so Amazon was oscillating with F.A. Wilson's From Atoms to Amperes. It seems seems kind of appropriate, don't you think? Anyway, I, I hope that uh, that cooler heads will prevail and that the, the price of that book will be brought back down to uh, to more reasonable levels. And I hope that somebody makes it available more widely uh, to the uh, to the uh, amateur science and amateur electronics community. Speaking of which, guys, it's time for Solder Smoke Mailbag. Ooh, that's awesome. All right, very appropriate. As we do Sutter Smoke Mailbag, we've got a thunderstorm going on here in northern Virginia. You guys might hear some thunder in the background. Always always makes it fun. Um, first mailbag item comes from Grayson, KJ7UM, stroke Tango Alpha 2, our man in Istanbul. Uh, Grayson said that he read the Sutter Smoke book for a second time, and this time he read it on a beach on the south coast of Turkey. Excellent. We love to hear... Solder smoke book being read. Hear about solder smoke book being read in far off and exotic places. Uh, Grayson reports that he had the same military occupational specialty that I did in the Army. 31 Lima, multi channel communication equipment repairman. There you go. Um, let's see. He also reports that, <clears throat> and this is kind of commenting on stuff that we talked about in the book. He, um, he notes that uh, when he started his double uh, E program in college, on the first day, the professor asked if there were any hams in the classroom, and several guys raised their hands, and the professor immediately announced that they would not do well in the class because they would be looking for a kind of intuitive understanding that would s- simply not be available in the double E program. <laughs> he, he switched to architecture. All right, good. Um, uh, Grayson is in a bit of a a, a, a difficult situation there in, in, in Istanbul. He needs uh, a way to get parts. Um, I don't think he's part of the uh, official U.S. community there, so unlike my happy situation in Italy where I got all my stuff through the basically through the U.S. mail, uh, Grayson doesn't have similar facilities, so it's really hard for him to order parts. Um, from DigiKey or, or other sources. So if anybody has any ideas on how we can help uh, old man Grayson over there, uh, let me know, and we'll see if we can we can help him out. Um, Kevin, M0KCO, has been reading the book. Thanks, Kevin. I hope you like it. 
Uh, Jerry Feltz, NR5A, our man in South Dakota, uh, sends an email. He sends me the serial number on his Drake 2A. And uh, Jerry is still looking for a very important spare part, not for his rig, but for, for himself. He's uh, still in need of a kidney for kidney transplant. And uh, we had a couple of real promising leads, but they just didn't work out. If anybody uh, has any info that might be of, of use to Jerry in his effort to uh, to get a kidney, that would be great. Um, Adam, VK6GA, also known as VK2YK. Adam's in the Royal Australian Air Force and is getting ready to um, for a move from Western Australia to the east. Uh, he's moving with small kids and says he could really sympathize with the... Uh, kind of trials and tribulations that we've gone through as we've moved around. I, I can sympathize with his move, although I think his move is a lot cooler than the ones that I've been on. Uh, he's moving across Australia, gets to go all the way across the outback. It's a, it's a real adventure. I, uh, I, I envy you there, Adam. Um, I was touched because Adam said that uh, he bought uh, Solder Smoke, the book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics for his dad for his dad's birthday. And he said that his dad really enjoyed it. So that's really good news. Thanks for that. Okay, let's see. Uh, Tim Walford uh, sent me some nice information on an event that uh, he and his company, Walford Electronics, recently held in, uh, in the western part of England, QRP in the country. Looks like a good time was had by all. Uh, got some nice pictures, including a picture of G3RJV officiating over um, one of the competitions that they had there and awarding a prize. Um, uh, Tim is the editor, uh, the manager of the QRP Constructor Club and the editor of their very fine uh, newsletter, which he very kindly sends to me. I, I, I really enjoy it. Great stuff. The, uh, the newsletter is called uh, Hot Iron. And uh, if you're looking for some additional uh, QRP and homebrew reading material, I, uh, I strongly recommend it. Got a nice email from Dave, Alpha Alpha 7 Echo Echo, AA7EE. I think Dave shows some uh, real diplomatic potential here because his message is about a regenerative receiver that he built, a beautiful regen that he built, uh, the WBR regen. Um, and in, his, in sending his email to me, he feels that he... Well, I, he obviously felt the need to comment on my recent uh, declarations about the regenerative receiver. You'll recall that I uh, have several times recently declared that the uh, the regens are, in fact, possessed and have uh, inherently demonic uh, uh, characteristics. Uh, Dave tries to put kind of a kind of a happy face on on my rather harsh uh, comments, and he he notes that. Uh, that I have had, quote, a complex relationship with the regenerative <laughs> receiver. Indeed, Dave's receiver is so beautiful, and it apparently works really well. And And Roger out in California sent in an email saying that the there's probably a strong relationship between the careful, beautiful uh, construction and the uh, the strong performance of, of the receiver. And I, I told Roger, I think this is kind of, bad news for me because it means that really there is no hope for me in the in the area of the regen if beautiful construction is a um, a um, a prerequisite for success well 
I am condemned to regem failure. Um, Dick, Whiskey Alpha 2, Juliet Yankee Zulu, wrote in to re- say that he's recently read uh, several books that we've recommended here on the program. Einstein's Heroes, he, he read and really enjoyed it. I love that book. That's a great book. And, uh, and now he's moving on to a book that I liked even more, First Light by Richard Preston. He, I think he got them both via the, uh, the, uh, the Solder Smoke uh, Gadgeteer bookstore. So, um, well, thanks for writing in, uh, uh, Dick, and please let us know what you think of First Light. I really love that book. Got a nice email from um, Phil, VK6ADF, uh, out there in Western Australia. Phil and I used to talk on Echolink. He's involved in all kinds of interesting hobbies, uh, remote control helicopters, all kinds of stuff. And he sent me a nice uh, panoramic 360-degree picture of the space shuttle uh, control panels. And you really need to have some sort of knack or the right stuff to, to fly that thing. Also from Australia, we got some nice email from John Dowdle. He doesn't have a call sign yet, but he's, he's interested in, in all our stuff. He sent me some nice video from Australia TV, and uh, I, I gave my, my, my blog posting about this what I thought was a clever and snappy title. My title was Australian Antarctic Antenna Archaeology. There you go. How, you, how, how about that? Australian Antenna. Nope. See, I got it wrong. Hold on. Here we go. Australian Antarctic antenna archaeology see uh here's the deal they had a um when they were starting uh when australia was getting into the antarctic exploration game there were there's an island halfway between the australian south coast and um and antarctica and it was an obviously a good spot for a, a radio relay station and they built one there and um that was in the early part of the 20th century they've recently returned to the island and have found the um the tower, the bases for the towers, and uh, anyway, um, they're um, they're digging up some of the antennas and bringing them to museums. Hence, the Australian Antarctic Antenna Archaeology. Check out the blog; interesting stuff. And thanks for sending that our way, uh, John. Got a nice email from Galen WA6 Sierra Bravo Bravo. He's a heavy equipment transport driver who's also into into astronomy, and he sent me a nice message. Says he listens to the podcast while on the road. And uh, and uh, sent me some really nice links on astronomy and the space program. Thanks for that, Galen. Uh, drive safely, safely. Happy trails. Um, got some nice email from Carl. Two Echo Zero Tango Echo Charlie. Two Echo Zero Tech, um, and he listens to the show and enjoys it very much. Thanks. Okay, what else we got here? Oh yeah, Jim N three J I M sends in a message commenting on uh, the Reverse Beacon Network. Guys, if you haven't tried the Reverse Beacon Network, as they would say in the Army, you're just wrong. You really got to give this a go. It's um, it's a great system. What happens is if you're calling CQ on CW in the HF bands, there, there are a number of lots of kind of automatic stations out there that are just listening and waiting for CQs, and they automatically pick up the CQ get the information, and upload it using software-defined radios. It's like a consolation prize for stations calling CQ. You call CQ, nobody hears you, you're feeling kind of down about it, you go to the Internet, and you find out that you've been picked up by several of these um, these automatic stations, and they report everything. They give you all kinds of good information. 
I found out what my CW speed is. I'm, I'm moving, usually kind of chugging along at about 14 words a minute. Didn't know that. Good information. Uh, give it a try. Check it out on the internet. Just uh, you could you could take a look at the article I wrote about it on the blog, soldersmoke.blogspot.com, or just uh, do a do a search for reverse beacon network. I think you'll really like it. Um, let's see. Got a, <laughs> here's a, here's a um, an email that came in from. Let me just get the call sign. Let's see. Uh, yeah, Bob KD4 EBM. He wrote in. You know. I, in the last podcast, we had a um, interviews done by Bob Crane, W8SX, out of Dayton. And included in the interviews, I was really very pleased to find that uh, that Bob managed to get an interview with Joe Taylor, K1JT, one of the most illustrious of uh, amateur radio operators, a holder of the Nobel Prize and the Nobel Prize. That's the Nobel Prize in physics. That's the big one. Um Anyway, uh, I noted that this was our first ever Nobel Prize um, a participant in the Solder Smoke podcast, and Bob uh, wrote to me to say, "Bill, I'm not. I'm sure." Well, he, he writes, "While Joe Taylor is the first, I'm sure he will not be the last. Frankly, I can't believe how long the physics committee has overlooked the groundbreaking work you've accomplished." in microphone research, particularly regarding the acoustic baffling properties of discarded laundry and duct tape. I hope this oversight will be corrected in coming years, and I'll see you uh, on the dais in Copenhagen. Copenhagen? Is that what? I don't think they do it in Copenhagen. Bob, you must be setting me up for some other kind of award here, but uh, <laughs> anyway, thanks for, the, thanks for the thought there, and yes, I hope the, uh, the committee... Uh, takes notice of our groundbreaking work here in the field of uh, acoustic uh, acoustics, u- acoustic use of discarded laundry and duct tape. All right, let's see. Got a very nice um, message from Tony Fishpool of the GQRP Club, and he commented on a posting that I put on the blog about a um, a radio amateur who, I mean, I, I read this guy's obituary and it really just blew me away he passed away several years ago i'm talking about merrill budlong of of rhode island what a great name merrill budlong have you noticed that old-time radio amateurs had really great names merrill budlong you know hiram percy maxim these were these were really names you could really sink your teeth into Anyway, Merrill Budlong was an amazing guy, well loved, and you just you read the comments that came, and that were the things that were written about him after he passed away, and you realized that he had had uh, a wonderful life and had helped many many people along the way, had many great adventures, and I wrote up a little piece about Merrill Budlong and put excerpts from his his obituary on the website, and uh, Tony sent me a nice uh, message commenting on the fact that it. It just seemed like he was just such a wonderful guy, and I and and I just in reading uh, Tony's email here, I was reminded that, you know, when I was talking about the uh, the Whisper direct conversion double sideband transceiver that I've been working on, I must note that uh, in addition to the pleasure that I take from the rig because of the circuitry that comes from G3 RJV W3PM because of the and because of the um, the little isolation pad sent to me by Jerry NR5A, 
and because of all the parts that are in there from Jim, AL7, RV, and Michael, AA1, TJ, um, the ideas that came from um, from Roger Hayward, KA7EXM, all this thing, all these things. I also failed to mention, and this is another reason I take pride in, in using this rig, is that uh, the power supply that I use to run it is made with parts sent to me by Tony when I was in the UK, and it's my Kempton Park controlled um, current limited power supply. When we were at the Kempton Park Radio Rally Hamfest. Uh, Tony told me that I really needed a um, a current limited power supply for the workbench, and he, and he sent me chips and parts that I could use to build one. I picked up a, a case for a nice power supply at the Kempton Park Radio Rally, and uh, well, that's the that's the power supply that I'm using to run my odd little Whisper direct conversion uh, double sideband half a half a Polyakov diode detector <laughs> rig and uh, well I'll put it up I'm gonna fire this thing up this afternoon and uh, anybody who wants to can take a look for my see where my signals go and just check it out check out the uh, the whisper uh, website you can see it you'll you'll see me on the map all right guys I think that's that's about it I think we're, we've come to the end of solder smoke 136 hope you've enjoyed the program Hope August is going well for you. Have a great time on vacation. Anybody who's still heading out for vacation, have a good rest of the summer for those of you in the Northern Hemisphere. I hope the winter is being kind to you for those of you in the South. 7-3 from Northern Virginia. The Solder Smoke Podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes, and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener-supported, and there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke store at cafepress.com. If you have a small business, Consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well, we have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support. Ciao, bravi ragazzi!